The scripture today is Luke 7, 36 through 50. So it says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who was invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will he love more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he can canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see the woman? This woman, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. If you guys could pray with me. Dear God, I thank you for this day. I ask that you just bless this Sunday, um, and please bless Ian as he gives the sermon today. Please have it resonate with us. And I also just wanna pray for you know all the hurt that's going on in the world, especially with Roe v. Wade right now, as we were just saying, it's a lot. So um, just please be with the people who are hurting right now and just bless us this Sunday. Thank you for this day and the ability that we get to be with you on this Sunday. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you, Annalise. Well, good morning, Door of Hope. I am Ian. Most of you probably know who I am. I'm one of the teaching preachers here. Um, it's quite a parable that we just had read. It was a long one. And I think that it's a cool one because we actually get to see it uh, depicted before it's described. I think that's unique. And it's pretty cool. And as, as, as we get into this parable, I, I think that it's worth noting, I hadn't planned on saying this, but just with the, the announcement about not only the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is a great thing, for those of you who, if I just may for a minute, if you're here this morning and you don't know what Christians believe, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and King of the universe and that we don't tell him when life begins, but he tells us. And the Bible tells us in, in Psalms 139 that he knit us together in our mother's womb. And one of my, one of my favorite stories that, that deals a death blow to this question for Christians about when life begins is in this gospel of Luke. Mary is pregnant with, with Jesus and her sister is pregnant with John the Baptist. And the, the two women come together and John the Baptist's mom says, the baby within me leapt with joy with the Holy Spirit at the, 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 the close proximity to Jesus in the womb. And so we believe that life begins at the moment 
of conception. And so the Roe v. Wade overturning for Christians, it's too bad that it's political, but it is, and we think that it's a good thing. But with that is going to come persecution as we've seen. And so if, if you're on the fence with this issue, if you're on the fence with any issue, we need to remember that Jesus Christ has everything to say about everything that we do. The way that we think, the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our time, we bow the knee to him. And the reason why I say that now is, A, I think it just needs to be repeated, and B, it, it, it is a perfect uh, sort of the on-ramp going onto the freeway with this parable here, because this parable begins with Jesus sitting at a table with a tax collector, and he's been invited to, or excuse me, with a Pharisee, and he's been invited to be a part of this supper. He's been invited to be a part of this dinner. And if you know anything about the Bible, that might catch you off guard because by and large, the Pharisees did not like Jesus at all. He was hated by them. They never denied his power, his miraculous power, or that his teaching was powerful, but they attributed his power to the devil. They did not like him. He threatened them. And so you have this Pharisee who's invited Jesus to dinner, and you might be asking the question why, and I think, that that's, a, I think that's a good place to start with this, with this parable. What's going on? Why has this guy invited Jesus to this supper? And I think it's very clear that the reason is that this Pharisee is wondering, who is Jesus Christ really? And that is the most important question in the universe. Who is he? Who do you make him out to be? This, this supper, this meal here with this Pharisee and Jesus at this table is early on in his ministry. It's early on in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus' ministry starts really in chapter 4, and this parable is in chapter 7. So it's only a few chapters of, of Jesus in his public ministry uh, causing a stir and becoming very quickly a provocative character. And so I just want to point out some of the things about him that would have led this Pharisee to maybe putting his thumb on his chin and going, who is this guy, for real? I gotta get a look at this dude. It starts, Jesus goes, he's baptized by John the Baptist. He takes his his 40 days in the desert to be tempted and then his public ministry really begins and we read in chapter four of Luke's gospel that right out of the gate, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, the town where he was raised. He was born in Bethlehem in the south. He was raised in Nazareth in the north. He gets baptized. He goes to spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, succeeds without any sin and then he starts his public ministry, goes right back to Nazareth and these are the words that we read starting in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up as was his, and as was his custom he entered the synagogue on the sabbath and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was handed to him and he opened the scroll and found the place where this is written the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the lord it's out of isaiah 61 And so he closed the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this is is wild. Who is this guy? He's back in Nazareth. He's in the very town where he grew up. There's women in this circle that probably babysat him and wiped snot off of his lip and 
rubbed water in his hair and cleaned up his, his ear gunk. And, the, and, and now he's here as an adult claiming to be the Messiah. And on one hand, you might it, you'd think about this and you're like, well, it might be kind of obvious. I mean, every single parent in Nazareth was pointing at Jesus and looking at their kids and being like, couldn't you be more like Joseph and Mary's kid, please? I mean, they saw his perfection up close, but at the same time, that sort of familiarity can, can bring this sort of cynicism. Like, I, I mean, the Messiah, he's a good kid, but the Messiah, Isaiah 61's really about you? Come on. So how do they respond? Well, <laughs> Jesus grew up here. He made coffee tables for the people in this neighborhood. He pulls Isaiah 61 out, and then he goes on to say a few more things that we'll skip over for the sake of time. But in verse 28, we read that all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they stood up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of a hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. That's how they respond to him. Who is Jesus Christ? He's, he's fine if we, if we take the article, if we take a definite article, the Savior, the King, the Lord, and we switch it with an indefinitive, he's a Savior, he's a King, he's a option. It'll make all the difference in how you deal with the world around you. We are going to face persecution. We're going to face animosity and amorous and hatred because we believe that Jesus is the King, the Messiah. And this, this drama that is unfolding because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade is one of many examples where you as Christians and I as a Christian are gonna have to get real with this. Are you ready to stand for this? Because in all likelihood, we're going to, it's less likely that we're gonna be persecuted because we stand on the name of Jesus Christ, that he is our Lord and Savior, and we're gonna be persecuted because we adhere to some way that he has directed us to do life, whether that's sex, whether that's something in the, something in the economy or the culture at large, Roe v. Wade, abortion, children. We're gonna face persecution because we do things the way that Jesus tells us to do things because he is our king. So who is this guy? He shows up in town and he says, I am the Messiah, Isaiah 61 is about me, and the people that raised him try to throw him off of a cliff. And then he goes on from there. He heals Peter's mother, he heals a leper, he heals a paralytic, he heals a man on the Sabbath, he heals a man whose hand is withered. Earlier on in chapter seven, he raises a young boy from the dead in a, in a town called Nain, a, a, a young boy who was the only son of a widow. He's doing these tremendous things, and he's making these radical claims, but people are looking at him and going, I just don't know. You, he just doesn't fit the description of what the Messiah is supposed to be in their mind, and maybe some way, some shape, some form, you feel the same way. Jesus just doesn't fit into my grid. Who is he? What are you going to do about that? It's funny, just to really drive this point home, even John the Baptist, his own half-cousin on his mother's side, who baptized him, the, the little boy who leapt for joy in his mother's womb, goes on to become an adult, and after Jesus' public ministry begins, John the Baptist ends up in prison, and even he begins to wonder, who is this Jesus guy? And just before our parable today, just before this story in verse 22, John the Baptist sends disciples, he's in prison and he sends disciples, go ask Jesus, are you really the one or should we expect another? In verse 22, 
holds Jesus' response. Jesus says, go and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why would that catch John the Baptist's attention? Well, because it's a direct quote from Isaiah 29. Are you really the one, Jesus? And Jesus' response is, I'm fulfilling the very prophecy of the Old Testament. While we're in the business of creating the New Testament. Go tell John that. Even John the Baptist had his doubts. And so then Jesus begins to say some things to the crowd that is immediately in the vicinity about John the Baptist. And he basically tells them that y'all are impossible to please. You're hard, you're hard to make happy. John the Baptist came and he was not eating or drinking and you say he has a demon. But the son of man comes eating and drinking and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This was Jesus' reputation because he hung out with people that had bad reputations. And so who, who is this guy? He's a glutton. Nah, yeah, he's a drunkard. I, I mean, I saw him raise a kid from the dead. His own, his own crew back home tried to throw him off of a cliff because he claimed to be the, the Messiah of Isaiah 61. Who, who is he? And as a Pharisee, this guy in our text would have been very privy to all of this. He knows his Old Testament well. And I think that he invites Jesus into his table because he wants to get a close look at who this guy is. And as we're going to continue, we're going to see, I believe that this Pharisee sort of had this Jesus is guilty until proven innocent mentality. He was curious, but he was cynical. How you doing? Who is Jesus? This is, this is my passion as a preacher. If I get fired tomorrow and I go back to knuckle busting for a living, this is, this is my passion. My, my wife is pregnant right now as we speak and that child is going to be, to be reared up to, to know who Jesus, not a set of rules, not a set of regulations, not some Jesus culture, but the person Jesus Christ himself. Who is he? What we have here is a story and a parable of two different people's reaction to who he is. And they couldn't be more opposed to one another. They couldn't be more different. So Jesus takes this invite. Pharisee was asking him to eat with him and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And she learned that when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Your translation, depending on the translation that you have, may say a woman of the city or a woman in the city. And it's been long held throughout church history, for as, as, far as, as far as I know, as far as I'm aware of, that that term woman of the city was sort of a, was a euphemism for a prostitute. She was someone who was a sex worker. And some translations say a woman in the city, meaning that it's, her, her sin isn't being specified exactly but it's describing her as someone who is well known and she does have a reputation as a sinner doesn't necessarily mean that she was a prostitute and i don't think it matters i don't think that the specific sin is important one bit i don't think that it matters but what i do think is important is that when we open the bible we go to jesus's categories we, we go to what the lord god has to say to us and we need to pause for a moment and recognize that this woman is identified as a sinner because that is a word that our culture hates 
And I've noticed in the church in the last 20 years that I've been paying attention that the word sin has become a cuss word even in the pulpit. And I think as far as I can tell, it's because pastors like money in the boxes and Teslas, and that's what they go with. I don't even think Teslas are really all that expensive anymore, but you get my point. We don't, we don't talk about sin. We don't talk about what's going on here in this very specific parable because it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uneasy. And I quote another pastor whenever I say, it is not my job or really even my concern to make you feel good. This is Jesus Christ. How you respond to him says, says something about you, not, not him. And so we have to start with where this Pharisee started. Who is this guy? Who do you say he is? Is he a, just a prophet? Is he just a teacher? Was he just some sort of moral, and some guy that gave us moral instruction? I mean, his moral instruction is good. People that hold nothing of Christianity at least will look at Jesus and say, yeah, I mean, I like, I like a lot of the things that he said. But do we bow to it? This woman is identified as a sinner because friends, God help us, we are sinners. We have fallen short of God's righteousness. We have fallen short of his perfection. We have failed. We really have. And this woman knows that. She's not arguing about it. And, and we don't really, we're not given any details at all of where this woman came from. We're not given any details about who she is. Really, maybe she just overheard Jesus teaching somewhere. Maybe she had a one-on-one interaction with him. But so profound was her understanding of him that she's absolutely melted. And this, this here is her manifesting a powerful, powerful showing of worship. I actually envy this woman because of the amount of love and reverence and respect and understanding that she has for who Jesus is. Is she a sinner? Yes, but the very God of heaven who, whose law has been violated for which she's a sinner, is here at this table, and what is she doing? Is she mad at him? Is she saying, well, you're unreasonable, your laws are stupid, that's unrealistic to expect us to be able to live up to your standard? She's worshiping him because she has experienced his mercy. Somewhere along the line, she has experienced his grace. She has experienced his love. She has looked into his face and not found condemnation or disgust, but she has found solace. She has found acceptance. And she is so overpowered by that that she comes into a room likely full of men who, most of whom, I mean maybe aside from Jesus, men who do not like her, do not want her around, and she weeps. She hears that Jesus is, is is here. She hears that Jesus is around, that he's at this table with this Pharisee, and so she goes out of her way. She goes and she gets this alabaster jar, which is, was imported from Egypt. It's very expensive. You had to break the jar to get the perfume out of it. And I just, just, a, just a quick note of technicality. Uh, this might be ringing bells to you because something like this also happens in John chapter 12. This is not the same event. They're very similar, but they're not the same. The one in John 12 took, took place in Bethany in the south. This is up in Galilee in the north. Two different instances, but that's not the point. That's just for clarity. This woman hears that Jesus is in the house. She runs and she gets this expensive 
costly perfume, and she comes into the house behind him with the intention of anointing him with it, of breaking this over his feet. And she's so undone by his beauty. She's so undone by who he is. She knows who he is. And her response is that before she can even anoint him with this perfume, she's overcome with emotion and she begins to cry. And not, not kind of wet eyes or you know, a, a stream down the cheek. These are alligator tears. She loves Jesus. She is worshiping Jesus. She is thankful to Jesus. She sees Jesus and she doesn't see this strong arm of authority bearing down on her. She sees grace and she sees mercy and she's melted by it. She sees forgiveness and she's melted by it. She, she understands that she's a sinner and she understands that that's a serious thing. It's not a word that we can avoid. It's not something that we should just give cursory attention to. It is a big deal. It is the problem of humanity, our violation of God's law. And this woman understands it so much that in proportion, she understands the mercy that he has for her, the forgiveness that she needs that he freely gives to her. And she's overcome with emotion and alligator tears fall from her eyes, so many that his feet need to get dried off. And so in another act of humility and another act that would have caused the Pharisees to put their hands to their mouth, she lets her hair down and she wipes the tears on his feet up with her hair. And Jesus goes on to say to Simon here in a few verses, I came into your house and you gave me no water for my feet, verse 44. That means that his feet were gross. And she washed his feet with her hair. I want to love Jesus this much. I'm convicted by this parable in, a, in multiple ways, but the core of it is that my understanding of Jesus is not as much as this woman understands Jesus. My, the, how palpable his grace is and his mercy and his long suffering and his slowness to anger has not penetrated as deeply in me as it had in this woman. She's an example to us. She knows who Jesus is. And this is how she responds to him. She responds with worship. She responds with gratitude. She responds with tears. And this man, this, uh, the other opposite end of the, of, the, of the spectrum, swinging the pendulum all the way to the far end, this Pharisee is standing there like this. With this attitude. Because he's someone who thinks he's done it. God's law, done, been there, in the bag, swish, nailed it. I don't need this Jesus guy. I don't need forgiveness. I'm not perfect, but hey, I'm not like this woman, this gross sinner, this someone whose reputation is so, so common that she's identified as a woman in the city. Everybody knows, everybody knows who she is. She's known for her sin. And this Pharisee looks at Jesus and thinks, I don't I don't need this guy. And here's the problem, friends, is that that is exactly the result of making sin really not that big of a deal. We have, to, we have to at least start there. We don't have to stay there. The grace, the cross, the resurrection, the forgiveness, all is also true. But we lose that unless we take a good, hard look 
at why it is that Jesus came in the first place. And the end result of, of I'm afraid of what our culture and our quote-unquote pastors are doing in mass is going, yeah, sin, don't, you know, whatever, don't worry about it, it's not that big of a deal, there's forgiveness, there's grace, don't beat yourself up, don't live in shame, and it's true, don't, beat yourself, don't live in shame. But you can't begin there. We have to start with having a sober recognition of what it is that's going on. We are sinners in the eyes of a righteous God. And it's a terrifying reality. Thank God that he is merciful and sent his son to give us a way out. But we cannot just skip over the fact that this woman is identified as a sinner, and so am I. All of us are. We share that in common. That is universal. And if we, if, if we try to sweep it under the rug or ignore it or dilute it or minimize it, we lose the severity of his mercy. We take away the severity of sin, we lose the severity of the cross. If sin's not that big of a deal, then Jesus coming to die on the cross ain't that big of a deal. And then you're left with a kind of pharisaical attitude where you could take it or leave it. We've seen that a lot in the parables with guys that have come up to Jesus. The rich young ruler comes to mind. The parable that Jesus told of the tax collector and the, and the publican, or the, and, the, and the Pharisee. The Pharisee still, even in that parable, had this idea of, well, I've, I've pretty much made it. I've earned my way into God's holiness. Whenever I die and stand before the almighty God of the cosmos and he says to me, why should I let you into my eternal heaven? My answer is gonna be, because I earned it. It's terrifying. And it's impossible. We need Jesus. And the biggest difference between these two characters here is that she knows that she needs Jesus and he doesn't know it. And so he sees this act of worship. He sees this beauty, and he's disgusted. And he quickly comes to the conclusion, this is why I believe that he already started with a cynicism about Christ that was then just verified to him. Jesus, in his mind, was guilty until proven innocent. He sees this take place, and his response is, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. (laughs) Isn't that, that's so gross. But, but friends, Christians can do this, can we not? We can develop this attitude because we forget who we are. We take the mercy and the grace of Jesus and we get sort of this puffy chest and we start to flex our biceps and we're like, well, I'm not. Like, friends, equal playing field. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the wages of that sin, Romans 6.23, is death. And we're all there together. So let's not, let's not do that. Christians have a, have a reputation of being judgmental and arrogant. Friends, repent. Stop. We're sinners who need a Savior, just like everybody else. And this guy looks at Jesus, and just to, if this guy were a prophet, he would know better. He would know what sort of woman this is. Prophets were supposed to be able to discern things that were not easily discernible. This is a, just kind of a cool, a cool story where we see a prophet of the Old Testament being given prophetic knowledge from the lips of Yahweh himself, from the voice of Yahweh himself, I should say. And I, I have to confess, I'm about to, work, I'm about to read an Old Testament name, so make fun of me, but do it later. This is 1 Kings chapter 14, and in verse 5, the word of the Lord comes, Yahweh speaks, and he says to the man, Ahijah, or Ahijah, uh-huh. That guy, he says, behold, listen, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of her son, for her son is sick. 
And so you shall say this and this to her, for when she comes, she's gonna pretend to be another woman. So now this prophet knows something that he wouldn't have otherwise known because God told him. He knows that whenever this woman comes, she's Jeroboam's wife, but she's gonna be pretending to be somebody else. So verse six, now it happened that Ahijah heard the sound. I just can't stop. Once you start, it's like, I screwed that up. I'm gonna try it again, period. Moving on, when this guy heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh word. Well, how did this guy know that she was pretending to be another woman? How did he know that this was the wife of Jeroboam and not somebody else? Because the Lord told him. He's a prophet. He's got this knowledge that otherwise he would not have. And prophets were expected to have that knowledge. And so in this Pharisee's mind, his conclusion is if this guy was a prophet, then he would be able to discern. And if he could discern, he would know who this woman is. And he would either, he either, so he either doesn't know, or if he does know, and he's letting her touch him, either way, this guy's not a prophet. We know that, that Jesus had this discerning power. We know that he's far more than a prophet, he is God in the flesh. One of my favorite moments of this is, in, is the mercy that he shows the woman at the well in John chapter four, when they're in a conversation about water and he begins to tell her that, I, I know about you, sister, five husbands, the guy that you're with right now, not, not your husband, and what did she do? She ran to town and she told everybody in Sychar, come see a man who told me all that I ever did, could this be the Messiah? Jesus had this power, and he proves it to Simon right here and right now. Simon's thinking to himself, if this guy, oops, sorry, if this guy were a prophet, he would know better. He's obviously a fake, verse 40, and Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Ooh, you ever got caught like that? You've been cocky, and then all of a sudden, the tougher guy shows up, and you're like, oh boy. Say it, teacher. And we have our parable. And the money lender, Jesus said, a money letter, lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was a day's wage. It's a, day, day, a day's worth of labor. So 500 days of labor versus 50 days of labor. And when both were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. And so which of them will love him more? Do you guys, this is sort of my own, if we were sitting one-on-one -on -one at a table at a coffee shop somewhere. This is, this would just be a conversation piece. Do you guys just, do you detect that this guy's like, God, Jesus, shut up. He's arrogant. He thinks Jesus is a fraud. And then Jesus, knowing his thoughts, responds to him and says, hey, I've got something to say to you, and gives him this parable. And listen to his response. Well, I suppose the one who graciously forgave him more, that's the answer that you want, right? That's what you want to hear. What's your point? I just detect, friends, I, I've been this guy, you know? Oh, Jesus. Again with the wise guy talk. You know, I've, I've been there. I have to rep I've had to repent of that. My heart has been hard. I see myself in this Pharisee. So, he answers, but he does answer correctly. And Jesus says, turning, Jesus says to him, you have judged Correctly, and I love this. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love that question. 
Because again, this is a problem that even, even Christians deal with. Do we see the people who bug us? Do we see the people that we disagree with? This was a woman, you know? She had a life, she had desires, she had fears. She probably had trauma, she probably had abuse. She lived in a very patriarchal society. She's in a room with a bunch of dudes, again, that most of whom don't like her. And I love this about Jesus. This is a place where we fail, but I love to see the God of the cosmos, the very one who is holding the earth in its place as it revolves around the sun, that same God looks at the arrogance of this Pharisee and he says, Simon, do you see her? Because Jesus sees her. She's got a bad reputation, she's a sinner. Lord knows what she's done, but Jesus sees her and is correcting somebody who doesn't really see her just sees her sin, sees her reputation, sees her past, sees what she's guilty of. But Jesus in his mercy and in his compassion, in his sovereignty, he sees her for who she is. Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, which is a practice, Genesis 18, four. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, holy kiss, Genesis 45, 15. You gave me no kiss as is custom, but she, since I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, Psalms 23, 5. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. All Old Testament imagery that was practiced, just common practice. You invite somebody into your home, you show them these courtesies. You did not anoint my head with oil. Notice the change. But she has anointed my feet with perfume. Remember John the Baptist said, John the Baptist who, at Jesus' own admission, John the Baptist, of women, or of men that are born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that about John the Baptist. Heck of a compliment. But even John the Baptist knew his place and what he said about himself is, I'm not unworthy to untie the sandals of Jesus' feet. Dealing with feet was the most humble of positions. It was the, the servant of the servant's job to take care of someone's feet. This woman did not anoint Jesus' head as was custom with oil, which is ubiquitous and commonplace, but she took costly perfume and in submission she, she anointed his feet with something that was fragrance, fra- that, that had fragrance and was costly not just with common oil. This woman's worship of Jesus is astounding. And this is where I want us to be, friends. I, this is what I want Door of Hope to be. This is what I wanna be. This is what I want my family to be. This is what I want y'all to be. I want Door of Hope to be known to be this kind of Jesus lover because the graffiti is going to continue. The smashed out windows are going to continue. The persecution is only going to get worse Do you really believe in this Jesus? Are you this surrendered? Are you this sold out? Because if you're not, when the heat gets turned up, then then you'll know. Then you'll know. I ask myself this. You know, it's one thing if persecution comes to me. It's one thing if persecution comes to the building that I work in. But what if somebody starts giving my wife Angela a hard time? I'm called to protect her. But how much allegiance am I gonna have to Jesus when it actually threatens my pregnant wife? (laughs) It's a scary question. 
We've got to get real with this. And sin is the easiest way, even it is the, and it's the most direct way, it is the way that we muddle the relationship. Christians do sin. And there's always this balance here. We, we want to be more conformed to the person of Jesus. And we know that we're going to fail. And thank God that his mercy is new every morning. We're told in 1 John 1 that if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. And he forgives and he forgives and he forgives. And Jesus tells us in John 10, once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you're in the Father's hand, no one can snatch you out. But the relationship between us and Jesus can be completely beaten to a pulp whenever we hold on to sin. In his grace and in his mercy, we can repent today and move forward and continue to repent. But if we're harboring sin in Christians, I know we do this. This is, a, this is a call to maturation. This is a call to sanctification. Because if you want to have this kind of relationship with Jesus, this heart-melted, face-melting, knee-bowing, tear-striking love for him, just a powerful love for him, the thing that will get in the way of that is holding on to sin, diminishing it. We're no longer under the power of sin, but we can be influenced by it. And it's the same as any relationship. My wife and I have a wonderful marriage, and it's because neither one of us is lying to one another. Neither one of us responds to the other with, shut up, I don't care, leave me alone. We don't talk to each other that way. We would still be under a covenant marriage if we did, but the marriage would be rough, especially for me. I would be getting beaten if I talked to my wife that way. Do you see what I'm saying? The relationship is for real. But friends, when we hold on to sin and we make light of it, it's detrimental to the relationship. It only hurts. And this woman is repenting. This woman is forgiven. And she understands the weight of that so much that she can't even stand on her own two feet. She's completely undone. And she's crying at his feet. And she's cost, I mean, she's giving costly. She's coming into this room, tears, hair, weeping, oil. And we get an image of what this religious professional has in mind about Jesus. Not only was he kind of, he had this kind of stiff arm like, well, you're guilty until proven innocent. I don't know about you. We'll see. I haven't made up my mind yet. But look at the way that he treats him. And Jesus calls him out in his own house, which is a bold move. This guy showed Jesus none of the common courtesies. This guy didn't care about Jesus. This guy didn't care about sin. And he's warned. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. That's another thing that Jesus does. He did it in chapter five. Famous story of the guy who's on, who's on a stretcher and his friends can't get him to Jesus so they climb onto the roof of the house, they tear a hole, <laughs> gangster, and they lower the guy down onto Jesus' head and Jesus says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven you and the Pharisees were mad because they're like, no one can say that but God alone. And here, Jesus says it again, who is this guy? Jesus' response that day to the man who was on the stretcher and to the people who were responding with anger about him saying, your sins are forgiven, 
was, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And the answer is, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nothing needs to happen. There's no fireworks show. I can just say that. You could disagree or agree with me, but I can say it. But then to show that he had authority, he said to the young man, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the guy did. Who is this Jesus? This is the question of your life. This is the question of your soul. This is the question of your eternity. Who is he? He's beautiful. Start there. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, look at this story. This, Jesus, is God in the flesh who we sinned against and fell out of relationship with because of our sin. He's too perfect and holy and just to dwell with unrighteousness, but he loves us so much that he did the costliest thing imaginable and sent his son to take the punishment of those sins. And Jesus never sinned in word, thought, or deed. He was perfect. And that record of righteousness is given to us so that we are seen in the eyes of Almighty God as he sees Jesus, which my favorite list is in Colossians 1, that is holy and blameless and above reproach. In Jesus Christ today, you can be holy and blameless and above reproach, and then for the rest of our lives, God the Spirit encourages us to start behaving more and more and more that way, more and more and more conformed to the person that Jesus is, more and more in his likeness, in his affections, in his cares, in his concerns. We become like him. This is the God of the universe. This is him. So you have to ask yourself, who is Jesus? And I can't answer that for you. All I can do is say, here he is, presented to us in his scripture. This woman whose sins are many have been forgiven for she loved much. So I have to make a note on this as we, as we begin to close. Some have taken this to mean, there's, there's, it's been a, a long ongoing conversation. You guys have, I'm sure are familiar with the two opposite ends of the spectrum. It's like one person gets saved whenever they're six they never smoke a cigarette, they don't have sex outside of marriage, they don't never cuss or chew or hang with guys that do kind of things, and then there's the people who just like, you know, they're in prison for premeditated murder. And they meet the risen Christ and they get saved. And that Jesus is teaching here that the premeditated murder person has a better relationship than the person who's never smoked a cigarette because they've been forgiven much. And that's not what Jesus is saying here because the Pharisee's sin on the outside may not have been as manifest as the woman's, but his heart was evil. His motivations were evil. He was a great sinner. And Jesus has a lot to say about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Go home and read it. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. He calls them fools. He calls them liars over and over and over. So I don't think this is, I don't think, it's not think, this is not about weighing sins. I only drank and did drugs for this many years. Well, I only drank and did drugs. That's not what this is about. This is about, under, do, you, do you feel the weight of your sin, regardless of how great it is on a human perspective? Because all sin is a violation of God's righteousness. The white lie, premeditated murder, it's all sin. And Jesus does say in John 19, that the one who betrayed him over to Pilate has the greater sin. So uh, there are variations in God's eyes, but that's for a different sermon on a different day. The point is that sin 
is punishable. Sin damns us. And whenever the Bible says that Jesus' own lips, he says that I came to seek and to save the lost, it is from that death that he came to save us. It is from hell that he came to save us. And it cost him everything. He was brutalized on the cross for us. And the Bible says it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. That is a God who loves. That is a God who is not distant. That is a God who cares. Who is Jesus to you? This woman understood the weight of her sin. She understood her need of forgiveness. And so when she had it, it melted her. And this was her response. I want to have this response to Jesus. I want to feel more and more how great his mercy is. I want more of that. And so he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins. He's God, that's who he is. And verse 50, and so Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's that simple. If you're here this morning and you, you don't, you're not a Christian, you don't know anything about faith in Jesus, you don't know what that means or what that looks like or how, what, get, what salvation is or what getting saved is, like do I have to pay a monthly fee or is there a dotted line? Do I have to have a certain blood type or something like that? No, it's, it's faith. This is, this is Jesus. This is the God of the universe. He is Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Do you believe this? And I often, I often, when I preach, I say, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus. And people have asked me, why do you do that? And it's because there's different Jesuses depending on where you go. This is Jesus, very specifically, who is God in the flesh, the triune Godhead. God come down into, in human form, felt human pain, human hunger, human suffering, it was tempted in all ways that we are, the Bible teaches, but he never sinned once, not in word, not in thought, nor in deed, and he takes that record and he offers it to you. He died on the cross for the punishment of the sin that we have committed, because sin had to be punished, and all the brutality of the Old Testament, all the goats and the rams and the sheep, that were slaughtered and their blood was shed was pointing to an ultimate sacrifice. Jesus Christ himself, he was not spared. He went all the way to the cross and once he was there, he stayed. He was buried in a real tomb, but death could not hold him because he was perfect. And so three days later, he rose from the dead and that resurrection life, that life that is overqualified for death, he offers you to those who will just put their faith in him, put their trust in him. Believe that this is true. Believe that this is God. That he's in heaven today, drawing people to him. If you feel that uncomfortable weirdness in your gut, don't ignore it. Don't ignore him. Say yes, you have my life. And then there's a long process of being a Christian in this world and that's what the church, part of what the church does together. This is Jesus Christ, he is awesome. This Pharisee invited Jesus to the table because he wanted to get a, a look at this guy, this guy who forgives sins but has a reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard because he hangs out with people who have issues because it's the sick who need a physician, not the well. And he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And part of that abundance means that we have it forever in heaven with him and with each other. That's how comprehensive his blood is. That's how awesome he is, amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me as we close out. Jesus, there's never a Sunday that goes by that I don't feel the weight of inability and insufficiency when it comes to 
declaring who you are because who you are is so profound and so comprehensive and so glorious that human language will always fall short. And so Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, the words of scripture today would be used to ignite a flame in the heart of those who are listening. Ignite a flame that I cannot ignite. Ignite a flame that a community group cannot ignite. Only a flame that you can ignite, Lord. My prayer is that the people here today would love you, Jesus. Go to church, go to community group, be, read all the commentaries, get, in, you know, get the biblical knowledge, yes, but Lord, that it is always motivated by wanting to know you personally because you are personally knowable. You came to earth to prove it. You, pr- you came to earth to accomplish it. And so Lord Jesus, we thank you for that sacrifice. Pray this morning for hearts that are hard, hearts that are confused and hearts that are hurt. The Bible tells us that you are near the brokenhearted. And so, Lord, speak to your people in the way that they personally need today. We trust you with that. We trust you for that. Thank you for being kind. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Father, for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins that we might have life forever. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.